I want to say at the beginning of this sermon that I love the church. The church is my passion. Um, when I was young, my dad used to fuss at me for taking so long to get to the car. Um, and that sort of continued over into adulthood. Um, I, I love the church. I love what the Lord does in the church. I want this morning for us to continue to do what I was doing before I left for Memorial Day weekend, which was to kind of take us through a, a spiritual checklist. These are the Sundays after the Lord's resurrection. We are to now go back, I think, and examine what Jesus said, particularly from the Gospel of John, which is where all the Gospel lessons are taken, to examine ourselves in light of the resurrection, in light of Jesus's not only death, but resurrection on the third day, how do we now see the things that God is calling to us? Now, we're still anticipating the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, we know the Spirit's been given to us. We have the Holy Spirit. It's not as if uh, liturgical worship pretends or denies the Spirit. Until, you know, like We don't deny Jesus is risen from the dead until after Easter. We don't deny that the Holy Spirit's come, even though it's not yet Pentecost. But we liturgically walk through these stages because it helps us to realize how much we need every gift the Lord gives. And, and obviously, we need the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to say a lot this week about the Holy Spirit, but next week, we'll say a lot about the Holy Spirit because it's Pentecost. But this week, I want to talk about the church, and I want us to think how we're doing as the church. And normally, it's always a sign that um, the preacher's not fully prepared when he can't preach from one scripture but wants to use all three scriptures. Guilty is charged. However, however, as I spent time on the scriptures, I really believe the Lord said, touch on these three because they are different aspects of what it means to be the church for the Lord in this world. And for us in Gainesville, in Gainesville, how are we to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this church. So I want to look at the three passages. I'm going to try to do them quickly so we get all three, and then I'll try to summarize uh, a few things at the end. So first of all, I want you to look at that Acts passage, Acts chapter 16. I don't know if you know this, but the reason why we, we stopped printing the, the service sheets is because we really wanted people to get into reading the Bible. I'm not sure how often people pick up the Bible. Um, I do have a spy who sits up high and lofty, and she looks down upon us. So she's given me some indication that there are only a few of you who are actually opening the Bibles, but, I, you know, let, the, let him who has ears hear what the Lord says. But I want you to think about these, the, the Acts passage for a few minutes, whether you open your Bible or not, but I encourage you to do. It's a familiar story. I want you to see that this too is the church. Now you might say, Alex, how can you say it's the church? It's just Paul and Silas in jail. Well, Jesus said, where two or more are gathered, two or three are gathered in my name, I will be in the midst of them. He says that in the Gospel of Matthew. So wherever there are two or three Christians, there is the church, right? So here's Paul and Silas representing the church in Acts chapter 16. It takes place in the... In the the city-state of Philippi, which is a part of the Roman Empire. It's part of Macedonia, modern-day Greece, or one of those Eastern European countries that we don't know the names of. Yeah, one of those two. Greece? Part of Greece. Okay. We think it's part of Greece, modern-day, but at the time, Philippi was its own city-state. Paul goes there and is thrown into jail, basically because 
he is annoyed by this demon-possessed girl who continually runs around and points out that Paul and Silas are ministers, are servants of the Most High God. I am so thankful that Paul got annoyed, aren't you? Do you ever get annoyed? I get annoyed. Paul got annoyed. Paul turned and he laid hands on this young girl and the demon was cast out of her. But there was a problem because her demon possession actually was a source of income, a stream of income for some, some men who owned her. She was a slave. She would tell fortunes and all of a sudden their magical ability within this girl is removed because the demon is cast out by the apostle Paul and so she's set free uh, but Paul is in trouble and so Paul and Silas end up being thrown in prison. The first thing I want to say about the church is that the church of Jesus Christ has to be a church willing to suffer. Paul and Silas are cast into the prison. Now we're not told what happens to Luke but just to point out, Luke's actually writing this account. Luke writes the entire, the, the physician Luke who accompanies Paul is, is writing this account. Luke transitions from chapter 15 talking about third person, they went here, they did this to we went here, we did this in chapter 16. So we know that Luke is there, but he's not mentioned as being thrown into jail. Don't know what that means. Don't know anything about the rest of the prisoners in jail, but we know that Paul and Silas are there. And yet in the midst of the jail, as they're locked in the very center of the jail, and this is not like Alachua County lockup. This is not like a federal penitentiary. Not three squares and, you know, color TV. Um, we're talking like dingy, dark dungeon type jail. And that's where Paul and Silas are cast. And yet we're told that at midnight, they're singing psalms and hymns and they're bringing joy into the midst of the prison. How hard would it be to worship the Lord in a dingy prison? And yet that's what we're told that Paul and Silas are done, they're doing. This morning, we're all grieving for the loss of our dear brother Michael. It's so good to see Joyce here with us. But what are we doing in the midst of our grief? We're, 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 we're praising the Lord, we're singing joyfully. We're bringing a joyful noise to the Lord. We're, we're clapping our hands because Jesus is Lord and we can entrust Michael and all the saints into his care. It's what we Christians do. We, we, we know how to suffer because we know that it's more than just what meets the eye. This Philippian jailer is there and he's in charge of them. And for all we know, he is just another typical pagan jail keeper. And in the middle of the night, in the middle of Paul and Silas's prayer meeting, with all the prisoners listening to them, we are told that there's an earthquake and somehow all of the jail becomes disrupted and no longer are the prisoners held. They can all run out because the, the walls have fallen. Apparently it affected the chains as well. And so all of a sudden they can all leave. And yet miraculously we're told they don't leave. Now you talk about good preaching. If you can keep prisoners who are set free in prison, you're doing well. But it's not without precedent. When Joey and I visited Savannah uh, years ago, we went to the, uh, the first African Baptist church in downtown Savannah. It's on one of the first squares. And we did the tour and we were told during the tour by this wonderful woman that, that in fact the, the, the preacher of this Baptist church had convinced slaves to use their money 
to build the church rather than paying for their freedom. Now that's some strong preaching. Those slaves saw something beyond just their own discomfort. They saw a, a, a sign of the kingdom. They saw they were a part of something that was transformative and a power that was entering into that jail that caused them to stay and be with Paul and Silas. Now, we're not told much about them, but we're told that they weren't there. The jailer is undone because the jailer is in a situation where his world has come apart. He lives with a worldview that basically says there's two forces in this world. There's, there's fate or what you might call fortune, which is like, you know, hey, blank happens, right? You know, it's that it's the idea that so if, you know we are we are facing fortune and sometimes fortune is favorable and sometimes fortune is unfavorable and and that's just the way it is and on the other side is our skill and our ability and our wit to try to manage against fortune and to prepare for the worst and to try to stave off fate as long as we can you know and that's sort of the where where people live that's where this jailer, jailer lived a lot of people in our modern age live in that same place right they're, they're, they're just trying to be smarter than the circumstances and find a way to make it. And they think it's just them against the universe. So when the earthquake comes and the prisoners are set free, all of a sudden this jailer's whole career, his whole reputation, his, his dignity as a human being, which is based upon his ability to stave off fortune and to, and to do the job well, it is undone. And so he pulls out his sword to kill himself. But Paul and Silas are there. The church of Jesus Christ will be willing to suffer. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody threw me into a dungy prison unjustly, or even justly for that matter, I would not be inclined to care very much about the eternal destination of that person's soul. I would be, you know, hey, let, let fate take them, you know. And yet Paul and Silas are there. They don't run away. And they cry out to the jailer, we're here. Don't kill yourself. And in that moment, because the church was willing to suffer, the jailer is undone. And he cries out, what must I do to be saved? He's been living between a, this worldview of it's, it's me against fate. It's me against the fortune and fortune is not smiled on me through this earthquake and now I'm going to kill myself. And yet here is two people that are proclaiming that there is a God who enters into our pain, walks through life with us and has a purpose greater than we can see or understand. Who sings in prison? Who stays in jail when you're set free? Who cares about the guy that locked you up? The follower of Jesus Christ. And because of that, not only is the jailer saved, receives salvation, but we're told his entire family. Now you want to talk about a costly church plan. A, church, a costly church plan is exactly what Paul ends up doing. I mean, we, I skipped over the fact that, that when, when they arrest him, he's beaten. He and Silas are both beaten before they're thrown into jail. 
And yet they're willing to suffer because they serve one who also suffers and has a purpose greater than what we can see. Well, that takes us to the second idea that I want to pull from you from the gospel reading this morning, which is the John 17 passage. I don't know if you know this. If you were with me on Good Friday down at Bo Diddley Park, you already kind of heard this a little bit. But just to remind you, this is Jesus' last prayer before he goes to his death. This is chapter 18 begins his passion narrative where he is arrested and and he's, you know, he, he... has the Last Supper, and then he's arrested and and eventually ends up being crucified. Jesus prays this prayer for his disciples. First of all, he's praying for his immediate, his apostles, those who are with him, those who will bear witness, those who bear witness to us that Jesus, in fact, did live at a certain time. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there's this weird phrase in the creed that says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And ever wondered why, why, you know, why give Pontius Pilate so much, you know, why, why talk about Pontius Pilate and the creed after all? This is the creed. This is the, this is the, this is the, uh, the, you know, essence of our faith kind of proclaimed. Why? Because Pontius Pilate grounds the person of Christ in history. By saying Pontius Pilate, we're referring to a particular Jesus who lived at a particular time and place and who was willing to go to a cross for us. It's a pivotal moment of history and Pontius Pilate becomes the marker of that historical moment. That's why we say Pontius Pilate. To ground Jesus in history. Because he lived, he was willing to to die for us. But right before he does that die, he prays. He prays for his disciples, and then he prays for us, the church that's sitting in this room, the church that is outside this room, the church that is gathered in prayer all over the world. He prays for us. And what does Jesus pray for us? He prays that we might be in unity. The second thing about the church of Christ is that it is the church in unity. Now, unity does not mean uniformity. I was taught that a couple of years ago, and I love that. We, don't, we can be in unity with people even if we're not in uniformity. Some people clap. Some people don't clap. Some people read prayers. Some people do prayers extemporaneously. Some people have church for an hour and a half. Some people have church for three hours. Some people have church for 45 minutes. We don't have to be uniform but we are called to be in unity. Jesus prays the last thing he prays for, which if you know anything about Jewish rabbis, the last thing is always the most important thing is that he prays that we would be one. Now, I don't think this unity is something that we can muster up the strength to do. Jesus said he prayed that we'd be one, so we better, we better manufacture it. I don't think it's something we can manufacture. We live in a country where there is some 20,000 or more denominations. We are plagued with the American pioneer spirit that says, if I don't like what you're doing, I'll go down the street, I'll rent a building, and I'll start my own church. You've heard the old joke about the guy on the desert island, right? And, and there's two shacks, and the, guy, the people begin to say, well, what's that shack? And they go, well, that's, that's where I go to church. That's where I worship. And then the people who rescue him see the other shack and they go, what's that shack? He goes, well, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) 
We live among denominations. We live among a divided church. We are not unified whatsoever. And yet Jesus prays that we would be one. So this has to be something that the Lord does in us. This is not something that we can accomplish ourselves. But we can celebrate it. And we can seek to not be an obstacle to it. And I think that's important. So when churches gather down at Bo Diddley Park and we go down and worship with them and it's uncomfortable because it's different, we celebrate the unity of the body of Christ when we can have joint services with Greater, AME, Greater Bethel AME Church. We do that. When we can get outside of ourselves, when we can think about the church of Gainesville. On Friday night, we hosted Newberry Christian School's graduation in our building. We were extending hospitality to the church of Gainesville that believers and non-believers may see that it's not about denomination or theological position, but it's about if, if, you, if Christ is your Lord, then you're my brother, you're my sister. We celebrate the unity. Jesus goes on to say that, that, we do, that, he, that he prays that we be one that the world might know that the Father has sent Jesus. So our unity actually becomes the thing that bears witness most powerfully to the world that, that we are in fact speaking about the God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And all that, it's kind of confusing. I know I've read it many times this week, but you've only read it once or twice, maybe this morning. Maybe you're reading it right now because you're confused. But, but is, if you read it, you know, it's all, if you go right through it, you can see that, that what Jesus is, is talking about is himself. He's the linchpin. Father, I am in you and you're in me. My believers are in me and I am in them. And because I am in you and you're in me, then they are in us. But Jesus is always at the center of everything. You see, we are to be in unity, but we have to know what we're unified around. And what we're unified around is the person of Jesus Christ. We bear witness to him. We bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is, that he, that he came into our world to reveal the Father. It's interesting that Jesus says, he doesn't say that they know the Father. He says that they know that you have sent me. How do we know what God is like? Because of what we've learned about the person of Jesus. At the end, Jesus says, here's the bad news. The world doesn't know me. But then here's the good news, Jesus says. But I know you. And they know that you sent me. Our unity is around the person of Christ who has revealed God the Father, who has revealed the love of God to us. And through our unity in that knowledge and understanding, we communicate to the world God's love for them. For God so loved the world. The church does not stand over Society and say, we're right and you're wrong. We got it together. You need to join us. The church stands in humility and says, 
We have found that Jesus Christ is a power greater than anything else in this world. And that he can even redeem suffering. And that he wants to be in a relationship with you. And that through the person of Jesus Christ, you can know the God of the universe. That is what we proclaim. Our unity, Jesus says, will reveal that. Our disunity will obscure and make difficult that fact. There's nothing that drives people away from the church more than their sense that Christians don't even know how to love and be with one another. That's why we talked two weeks ago about Jesus' new command that we learn to love one another. Boy, was that a bad idea for me to preach that because after that sermon, man, I had more opportunities to, to stand in witness to the fact that it is hard for us to love one another and yet that's what we're called to do. I have no idea what's going to come out of preaching about unity in the church. But here we are, the Word of God, what are you going to do? There's nothing else to preach. So the church is a church that's willing to suffer. The church is a church that is united. But lastly, the church is a church with a vision for the future. Will you turn over to to Revelation chapter 22 really quickly? There was a sense when we read this at the early service that I just almost said, you know, let's just stop and worship right now. It's the end of Revelation. It's the end of the Revelation to John of Jesus Christ. He is speaking through what is going to happen in the end times before he comes. And, and, and what does he say at the end? He says, don't seal up the record. It's not, don't, not over yet. Let the evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous do right. Let the holy still be holy. These things are going to go on. Holiness and filthiness and evil and righteousness will still be a part of the world. It's going to continue to happen. But the church is a church that has a vision for the future. And he goes on. But I'm coming and I will bring my recompense with me. I will repay everyone for what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the last and the first, the beginning and the end. Part of the problem in our culture today is that there's no sense of accountability. There's no sense in which we feel as if we'll be held accountable for how we live our lives. We have been fed personal fulfillment. Do what makes you happy. Enjoy yourself. Take what you can, you know, whatever. Without any understanding that we will give account for our lives. Not just non-Christians, but all people. All people will give account before a holy God with what we've done with the life we've been given. We as Christians have a view to that end. And so we live our lives appropriately. Is this world battered with sin and wickedness and filthiness? And yes, it is. But yet we are called to be in this world. Just as Paul and Silas were walking through that Philippi city to bring about the kingdom of God, just just as Jesus is praying before he goes to his cross, so we are left in this world to be about bringing about 
the, the, the light of the gospel into the darkest of places. Why do we do so? Because we know the end. Here's the encouragement. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to, to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. This is a, a vision. Uh, these are metaphorical words of, of understanding what it means to, to be received into God's household, to, be, to, be, to receive salvation. Outside are the dogs. Boy, the cats are going to be happy about that. There'll be no dogs in heaven. Probably not. When Paul talks about the dogs, he's talking about the evildoers. Um, and that's probably what he's dealing with here, not the, the physical dogs. But he goes on, sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and those who love and practice falsehood. There, there's a cleansing that comes from those things which defile us and which keep us from the kingdom of God because they are, they're, they're debased and they're, they're unholy and they, they really make us less than human. And God has called us to be fully human in Christ. But we've all been redeemed from those things if we've been redeemed at all. It's, it's not as if I'm no longer a sinner. I'm, I'm still a sinner saved by grace, which is why I think it's so cool that the very last words of the, the whole Bible are the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Because it's never without grace. So the church doesn't stand over the culture and say, you're bad, we're good, you need to be with us. The church stands as a signpost to the world and says, we have found the one who can forgive your sin. We have found the one who can bring us into right relationship with God the Father. In fact, he is God the Son, made man, died for our sins, risen on the third day. We become signposts of the world that is to come. That is the church of the Lord. The bride is a, a familiar metaphor that the scripture uses, particularly in the revelation of John, to talk about the church. We are the bride waiting for our bridegroom. And what does the bride cry out? Come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Let them drink from the water of life without price. The church has a vision for the future, and so we stand as, as signposts, as heralds for the kingdom, and we say, if you are thirsty for something else, come and drink from Jesus Christ. Come. Drink without cost. All that's required is that we bend our knee and acknowledge that we are not Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That's Jesus. It's taking him a little longer than we thought. 
Amen. The church responds, come Lord Jesus. The church is the church that is, the church of Jesus Christ, the church that's willing to suffer for those who are outside the church. The church of Jesus Christ is the church that seeks unity and understands that we are called to be one because that's what glorifies the Lord and that's what reveals Christ to the world. And the church is the one who looks to the future. And because of the future and because of what is offered, stands as a herald to invite others into the kingdom. So how are we doing? It is so easy for the church to become inward. There will be those who will say, man, why are we hosting Newberry Christian and Littlewood Elementary, letting them come in and use our buildings? We should be charging them rent or we should not be doing it at all. Wrong attitude completely. Completely counter to what we just heard. We are the church who willingly suffers. Last couple of weeks, I've heard some folks saying, you know what, there are some of us that are working way too hard, and there are some of us that are not working nearly hard enough. The church that suffers. Serving Christ will not get you your rights met. It will not be fair. It will be costly. There are some who say we need to be about ourselves. We need to be taking care of our church family. And if you're not a part of our church family, then, then God bless you. Not, that's not what I read in these scriptures. We're to be united. We're to be looking for opportunities to bless the church of Gainesville. We're called servants of Christ. We're called to be serving the people of this city, any way we can. Now, Paul wasn't a pushover. He got annoyed at this slave girl when they tried to kick him out of the city and, and just sort of send him off after they realized he's a Roman citizen. He stood up for his rights, but, but Paul was willing to suffer for the gospel. So do we. Because we have a vision of what the Lord is doing. We don't lord it over people. We don't stand as those who are against the culture. But rather we stand in the culture saying, come and drink the water of life. Anyone who is thirsty, come and receive. Folks, this is the church we're called to be. This is the church that Christ died to give birth to. Now, do we need the Holy Spirit? Desperately. <laughs> Most desperately. But this is the church that we're called to be. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for calling us out of darkness into your light, Lord. Thank you for continuing to challenge us, Lord, to have a vision of your kingdom, Lord, to 
to try to be your people in the world, to find our place and to serve you as faithfully as we can. Lord, teach us to be long-suffering. Teach us to love unity and to seek it out. Teach us, Lord, to have a vision for the future, not live just for the moment, but to understand what you're doing in the world, Lord, and how you want your church to be a signpost to people. And Father, we, we pray you strengthen us in the time of trial. And that you purify us, Lord, as you are pure. Above all, Lord, we pray that you would pour out your grace upon us, that we would be graceful with one another as we live and learn to be your church in this world. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.